You are listening to CGSW on 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. Today, in honor of her 80th birthday this year, we'll be looking at Joni Mitchell. The date is July 24th, 2022. After several years of almost no live performances, fans were treated to a surprise performance by the one and only Joni Mitchell. After suffering an aneurysm in 2015, there was uncertainty whether she would be able to perform again. But, with the help of singer Brandy Carlisle, Joni defied expectations with this momentous occasion, accompanied by musicians like Carlisle, Winona Judd, and Marcus Mumford. As CTV News describes, she performed her classic songs such as A Case of You, Both Sides Now, and The Circle Game. On top of that, Carlisle later stated that Joni left the Newport stage with the itch to perform again. As a fan of Joni Mitchell myself, I was more than pleasantly surprised to see her return on stage. I personally remember the news dominating social media, with people of all ages celebrating her triumphant return. To be sure, Joni Mitchell has always been a popular artist, and she already established herself as one of history's greatest songwriters decades ago. But it's remarkable how she's only gotten more popular over the years, finding a new audience among millennials and Gen Z. Rolling Stone mentions modern artists like Harry Styles and Taylor Swift as being influenced by Joni's music, representing a new generation of fans. Why is this? It could be because of her timeless songwriting. Her brutally honest view of love and heartbreak are just as relevant now as they were back in the day. It could also be because, along with other women at the time like Aretha Franklin, she brought down gender barriers in the music world and inspired aspiring female artists. She had significant creative control over her music, even serving as a producer for many of her best-known albums. It could also be because, quite simply, she was a great songwriter with a beautiful voice, with a nice touch on the guitar, piano, and even the Appalachian dulcimer. On historical figures, icons, and others, we'll discuss Joni Mitchell's life and career while also exploring her best-known songs and how they influenced scores of musicians then and now. Joni Mitchell was born on November 7, 1943, in Fort McLeod, Alberta, moving with her family to North Battleford, Saskatchewan, after the end of World War II. Later, she moved to Saskatoon, and as Wally Breeze describes on her official website, Saskatoon is the place she has since referred to as her hometown. Her musical beginnings started at age seven, when she briefly took piano lessons. Her skills in visual art were also noticed at an early age by her peers. One mentor was her grade 7 English teacher, Mr. Kratzman, telling her that, if you can paint with a brush, you can paint with words. Those words resonated with Joni throughout her life. Being exposed to rock and roll as a teen, Joni learned to play baritone ukulele, later picking up guitar, and played at various gatherings, 
while also hanging out at the Saskatoon coffee house named the Louis Rial. Unfortunately, in 1953, Joni was a victim of the polio epidemic that struck Canada. While still able to walk after she recovered, the polio permanently damaged her left hand. In her book, Will You Take Me As I Am, Michelle Mercer points out that this is why Joni learned to play guitar with alternate guitar tunings to ease the stress of playing difficult chords. This unique playing style would later become one of her defining musical trademarks. Joni attended the Alberta College of Art in Calgary for a year and became a regular performer at a local club called The Depression. At the end of the school year, she traveled to Toronto to become a folk singer. However, Breeze mentions she struggled to get into the music business in Toronto and worked at various department stores throughout the remainder of 1964, including Simpson's Sears. Although made public years later, Joni also found out that she was pregnant by her college ex-boyfriend and, in February 1965, she gave birth to a baby girl. Joni, now alone with the newborn baby and without employment to support her, had no choice but give the girl up for adoption. Joni's heartbreak over surrendering her newborn daughter would prove to be a turning point in her life. As Mercer explains, music was used to fill this childless void. More on this later. Shortly after Joni married Chuck Mitchell, the two moved to Detroit in the summer of 1965. Like many aspiring Canadian artists at the time, she moved to the U.S. because opportunities in the music industry were more plentiful. In a 1968 CBC interview, Joni mentions that despite there being many talented singers in Canada during the 1960s, it was difficult for artists to make names for themselves and were limited to the local circuits. During the summer of 1966, Joni played a short set at the Newport Folk Festival at Rhode Island, one of her earliest major performances. After her marriage with Chuck ended, Joni moved to New York City in 1967, all the while playing venues along the East Coast, and gained a following as a performer and songwriter. Breeze mentions that while performing at a club in Florida, Joni met David Crosby, a former member of the folk rock band The Birds, who saw great potential in her. He helped convince Reprise Records to let Joni record her own solo acoustic album. This debut album, Song to a Seagull, produced by Crosby, was released in 1968. Though the album itself was initially a minor success, Joni's talents were nevertheless gaining attention. Joni wrote songs that were recorded by other artists, including Judy Collins' Both Sides Now, which appeared in the top 10 of the national music charts. Collins also later recorded another Joni Penn song, Chelsea Morning. Joni's heightened reputation as a songwriter heightened anticipation for her second album, Clouds, which was released in 1969. It contained Joni's own versions of the two songs Judy Collins had recorded, 
becoming among Joni's best-known recordings. I would like to take a moment to mention how Joni's early life in the prairies influenced her songwriting. Growing up in Saskatchewan, Joni had a close connection to nature, frequently biking through the countryside and climbing trees. In her book Music in Canada, Capturing Landscape and Diversity, Elaine Keeler mentions that Joni later described her songs as having a striding quality, which is like long steps across the flat land. True, Joni built most of her music career while living in the United States, and her songs were based on her observations of the American landscape, but she never forgot her Canadian roots. One early song of Joni's, Urge for Going, was originally inspired by a nerve-wracking debut performance at the 1965 Mariposa Folk Festival in Ontario, according to Mercer. However, it uses imagery from the prairie winter landscape, referring to the meadow grass turning brown, the harsh prairie winds, and geese flying south before the snowfall. We got the urge for In the case of her album Clouds, her classic song Both Sides Now uses the sky and clouds as metaphors, which Mercer believes was inspired by the open spaces and skies of Saskatchewan. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow it's cloud illusions I recall. As Mercer notes, even the album cover art, painted herself, shows Joni holding a red-orange prairie lily, also Saskatchewan's provincial flower, with the Saskatchewan River running behind her. With all this in mind, it's easy to see how her background as a painter played a major part in her musicianship. Like her teacher Mr. Crotsman told her, she was capable of creating imagery through words using her songs to paint vast landscapes for the listener. 1970 saw the release of her third album, Ladies of the Canyon, also featuring some of her finest tracks. Big Yellow Taxi conveys an environmental message. Mercer mentions that while vacationing in Hawaii, Joni peered out the hotel window and was saddened to see a parking lot in paradise. As Rolling Stone mentions, Woodstock was inspired by the 1969 music festival, which Joni herself was invited to, but did not attend. Her co-manager insisted that she stay in New York City to ensure that she did not miss her TV appearance on The Dick Cavett Show. However, her partner at the time, Graham Nash, performed at Woodstock with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, who also famously covered the song. But where their version was far more rockier and upbeat, Joni's version of Woodstock was more haunting 
and Stark. All that is heard is Joni playing electric piano, along with her singing. She also overdubbed her voice to serve as harmony vocals, having a choir-like quality. In her book, The Creative Odyssey of Joni Mitchell, Catherine Monk points out the line, Getting Back to the Garden, referred to rediscovering the lost innocence of Adam and Eve, who were expelled from the Garden of Eden after eating the forbidden fruit. The Circle Game was originally recorded by Tom Rush for his 1968 breakthrough album. As Joni explained at a 1970 performance, she was inspired to write the song after her friend Neil Young wrote the song Sugar Mountain, which grieved the loss of his youthful years. Rolling Stone quotes Joni who remembered thinking, If we get to 21, and there's nothing after that, that's a pretty bleak future. So, she wrote The Circle Game, a more hopeful song that not only celebrated childhood, but also the possibilities of adulthood. It tells the story of a boy growing up, exploring nature, and skating over frozen ponds as a child, driving through town as a teenager, and finally, turning 20. Not all his childhood dreams may have come true, but there will be new and better dreams to look forward to. We're captive on a carousel We can't return, we can only look behind from where we came and go round and round and round in a circle. By this time, however, Joni found herself uncomfortable with fame and needed to step back from the pressures of the music industry and life on the road. She took a trip across Europe, backpacking with a dulcimer and a flute. The dulcimer in particular would be the instrument she would use to write much of her 1971 album, Blue. As CBC explains, Blue marked an important transition for Joni, moving from the acoustic folk sound of her early works to the increasingly complex production heard on later albums. In 2020, Rolling Stone ranked Blue as the third greatest album of all time, following Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. Unlike the elaborate music production on those albums, Blue is far more stripped back, using simple accompaniments that, along with the dulcimer, uses acoustic guitar and piano. There is very little use of electric instruments, and the percussion, if even heard, is rather subtle. As Rolling Stone explains, Blue is the first time any major rock or pop artist had opened up so fully, lamenting past relationships and romantic encounters. For these reasons, Blue redefined confessional songwriting in popular music. As Rolling Stone describes, A Case of You centers around a male character who represents several men in Joni's life during that time, notably Leonard Cohen, and her then-partner, James Taylor, 
who joins in on guitar on this track, among others, on the album. River, a song you may have heard during the holiday season, begins with a piano melody reminiscent of Jingle Bells. Rolling Stone describes Joni grieving the end of a relationship. I'm so hard to handle, I'm selfish and I'm sad, now I've gone and lost the best baby that I ever had. Mercer offers an interesting perspective on River. She believes that Joni's residency in Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles, forced her to look back home in Saskatchewan, dreaming of escaping the snowless winters and skate away on the frozen river of her youth, a familiar place to escape to after romantic heartbreak. Although many of Blue's tracks are somber in nature, Others retain a playful sound as well, such as the track Carrie. As Rolling Stone explains, when Joni traveled to the island of Crete in Greece in 1970, she met a fellow American named Carrie Raditz, who worked as a local cook and sandal maker. One of the more musically elaborate songs on Blue, Carrie features Stephen Stills on bass and acoustic guitar, and Russ Kunkel on the conga but one of her most personal tracks appears on the album. Little Green reflects upon the adoption of her daughter. Admittedly, this is not obvious at first listen, but it appears that the rather cryptic lyrics were intentional. The generation that her parents came from viewed having children born out of wedlock as shameful. Although Joni remained silent about her daughter, even to her parents, she still found a means to express the sadness in a beautifully poetic way. As Anne Carpenin notes in her book, The Songs of Joni Mitchell, Gender, Performance, and Agency, Joni does not necessarily regret her decision, but as the lyrics say, she feels sad and sorry. She once again invokes Canadian imagery in the chorus. Just a little green like the nights when the northern lights perform There'll be icicles and birthday clothes And sometimes there'll be sorrow When reflecting upon the album in 1979, Joni told Rolling Stone, There's hardly a dishonest note in the vocals. As she continued, At that period in my life, I had no personal defenses. I felt like a cellophane wrapper on a pack of cigarettes. I felt like I had absolutely no secrets from the world, and I couldn't pretend in my life to be strong or to be happy. But the advantage of it in the music was that there were no defenses there either. It's for these reasons that Blue stands out as Joni's masterpiece. Just as a side note, I highly recommend this album if you haven't checked it out yet. With Blue proving to be a success, Joni decided to return to the stage, including a US tour in the spring and some European performances in the summer. Her next album, For the Roses, was released in October 1972 and was an immediate success, containing the hit song 
You turn me on, I'm a radio. According to Mercer, the tune was a jab at Asylum Records, who had requested that Joni produce a radio-friendly single. Ironically, it was Joni's first top 40 hit, reaching 25 on the music charts. The album was also Joni's first to feature orchestral arrangements. Although working with backing musicians helped expand Joni's musical scope, it was not without some difficulties. Carpenin quotes Joni from a 1996 interview. She stated that the backing musicians were forcing their own musical style upon her music without fully examining what type of song they were playing to. She would try to tell them how to play. In her words, they would say, Isn't that cute? She was trying to tell me how to play my axe, and I've played with James Brown. Joni was sadly reminded that it was difficult for a woman like her to guide male musicians into playing what she wanted and provide constructive feedback. This reminds me of an interesting perspective that Elaine Keeler presents. She notes how Joni believes that her womanhood played a vital role in her songwriting, believing that a woman can better understand another woman's problems. Men, on the other hand, are quick to resolve the said problems. How did this relate to her songwriting? In her words, Joni explained, Suspended chords are unresolved chords. If you go from an unresolved chord to an unresolved chord to an unresolved chord, I think it bugs men. But my life has been unresolved. So these chords suited my disposition emotionally. They depicted my life. Incorporating unconventional rhythms from jazz and rock into her folk-pop music, Joni released the album Court and Spark in 1974, becoming one of her most influential albums. As Breeze explains, she had met multi-instrumentalist Tommy Scott in 1972 and recruited him to play woodwinds on For the Roses. She once again called upon his talents for the recording of Court and Spark, also featuring his band, the L.A. Express. The single, Raised on Robbery, was released in December 1973, surprising listeners with a completely different sound driven by electric guitar. Although Mercer notes that the album was a step away from the stripped-back and intimate acoustic styles of her previous works, the autobiographical element of her songwriting remains present. In March... The single Help Me became her only top 10 hit. As Rolling Stone notes, the song laments a romantic couple who are equally uncertain about settling down. It has a rather complex song structure, with bassist Max Bennett mentioning that the harmonic structure she used, it was so unique. Later that same year, Joni released the live album Miles of Isles, shortly followed by her next studio work, The Hissing of the Summer Lawns, in 1975. Summer Lawns saw Joni delve further into the world of jazz rhythms. Although initially rejected by listeners, it is now acknowledged as one of her most important albums, 
Monk notes that Prince Afanagioni declared Summer Lawns to be greatly influential on his own musical style. Hegira, released in 1976, continued this exploration of jazz styles, although with a more subdued and moody atmosphere. As Breeze writes, many of the songs on the album dealt with Joni learning to be at peace with not having a family. Mercer also points out that after a few more relationships, finding and losing love seemed less important to her than it did when she wrote the songs for Blue. Take a listen to a clip from her song, Amelia. Maybe I've never really loved I guess that is the truth I've spent my whole life In clouds at icy altitude Hedgira arguably tied together the most influential period of Joni's music career, but she never stopped experimenting and continued to release successful albums for years afterwards. Canadian Encyclopedia explains that shortly afterward, she recorded the experimental album Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. One notable track was the ambitious 17-minute Paprika Plains, catching the attention of jazz legend Charles Mingus. This prompted him to reach out to Joni for a musical collaboration. Breeze mentions that although Mingus did not live to see the completed album before passing away in January 1979, he heard most of the lyrics that Joni had written for his melodies. The album, titled Mingus, was released later that year. The 1980s saw Joni continue to experiment with musical styles. She explored a rockier style with the 1982 album Wild Things Run Fast, and synth-pop sounds on 1985's Dog Eat Dog. As Canadian Encyclopedia explains, her 1988 album, Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm, saw Joni continue to experiment with synthesizers and drum machines while collaborating with other prominent artists. The first single, Snakes and Ladders, was a collaboration with Don Henley, and the second, My Secret Place, was one with Peter Gabriel. The 1990s was seen by many as a return to form for Joni as she returned to her acoustic folk roots. The 1994 album Turbulent Indigo won two Grammy Awards. She also oversaw the release of two compilation albums in 1996, one titled Hits, the other Misses. All this time, Joni never stopped pursuing painting and visual art. In 1979, she released a coffee table book of paintings and drawings. As Monk mentions, Joni was reunited with her long-lost daughter, Kiloran Gibb, in 1997, what she described as filling the void that had remained with her for all those years. Canadian Encyclopedia mentions the new millennium saw Joni looking back at her early days as an artist, which included reworking some of her classic songs. She released Both Sides Now in 2000, a collection of love songs from the 1920s to the 1970s, and new versions of Both Sides Now and A Case of You. She continued in this vein with 2003's Travelogue, featuring rearrangements of songs from 1966 to 1994, presented in jazz-infused orchestral atmospheres. Despite recent health issues, 
Joni Mitchell's passion for art and music only continues. Joni Mitchell continues to be regarded as one of the most dominant music forces, not just in Canada, but across the globe. Considered to be among the greatest songwriters, her lyrics were rooted in her Canadian upbringing, while also reflecting the American landscape that she also saw. As a painter, she provided rich imagery with her words, often accompanied by her unique guitar playing. Her songs about love were not just simple love songs. For instance, the songs off Blue painted a brutally honest picture of romantic heartbreak, a style that inspired generations of songwriters. Her fusion of jazz and folk that emerged during the 1970s also proved influential. Joni's music was not only a breath of fresh air for female artists, but musicians from all walks of life. If you're not as familiar with her music, I urge you to explore the songs I mentioned, and any others that I didn't. Joni Mitchell's music is the type I find myself returning to time and time again, because I often discover something new about her songs. And for me personally, I think this is one of the highest honors you can give to any great songwriter like Joni Mitchell. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures, Icons, and Others. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And as always, stay tuned for future episodes.